So what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does that mean? You are listening to To Loose Ends, a bi-weekly podcast from Michigan State Student Radio that seeks to define America through an international perspective. We feature underrepresented voices to answer the question, what does it mean to be American? From WDBM, East Lansing, this is Loose Ends. I'm Nina Rao, your host. This is the second episode of Loose Ends, and we're going to discuss Richard Spencer and white supremacy. About two weeks ago, I heard through the grapevine of MSU that Richard Spencer, a white nationalist, will be coming to speak on campus. He'll arrive on March 5th, right in the beginning of spring break. I'm aware of the whole campus violence related to white supremacists and nationalists coming to speak, but not more than that. It was when I started reading details on how, when, and why Richard Spencer's coming here, I got interested in the backlash and history of the protests. But before we get into that, who is Richard Spencer? If you Google his name, the right-hand side of the page will have a box that explains Richard Spencer is an American white supremacist and is the president of the National Policy Institute, which is a white supremacist think tank and Washington Summit publishers. He's a passionate believer of taking quote-unquote America back from diversity and believes this country belongs to the white race. During President Trump's inauguration, he did an impromptu interview near the event and was punched on camera. You can imagine how Twitter was reacting. So that's sort of the crash course on who Spencer is. I'm more curious about folks using violence to suppress his speech. I get that some students disagree with him, but how did disagreement lead to violence? It all started in February 2017, when controversial blogger Milo Yiannopoulos was invited to speak on UC Berkeley's campus. The day he arrived, roughly, quote-unquote, 150 black-clad anti-fascist radicals with club shields lit fires, crawled Molotov cocktails, smashed windows, and caused enough of a scene to achieve their objective. Deny Annapolis the opportunity to spread what they view as dangerous hate speech. With this in mind, I wanted to know how folks in my community felt about Spencer visiting in March. I messaged a bunch of student groups, like MSU College Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, you name it. In the end, MSU Young Democratic Socialists and Stop Spencer at Michigan State Coalition responded and sent their representatives to this studio. I think that the... That's Jonas Higby, a sophomore here at MSU. He's part of the Young Democratic Socialists. Ideas of uh, students becoming involved in politics and uh, in this sort of left-wing politics, uh, promoting uh, equality, economic justice, anti-racism, anti-sexism, good ideas, and also the opportunity to explore those sorts of ideas with like-minded individuals who I still wouldn't necessarily agree with about everything. That's why he joined YDS. If you're wondering about what young democratic socialism means, you're not alone. I had no idea as well. Democratic socialism is the belief that the the means of production, um, so I'd be like factories, farms, uh, places of, of business should be controlled by the the people who work there instead of elite class, uh, the the bosses. So that's socialism. And then uh, democratic socialism believes that 
in order to transition from where we are now, um, which is capitalism to socialism, that that should be done through uh, democratic means such as electoral politics and more gradual reforms. Well, that's according to Jonas. Aiden, a Lansing resident who's part of the Stop Spencer at Michigan State Coalition, shared what his group means. I mean, this coalition is a, is a group of um, made up of many different groups, individuals that, um, with all the same goal and the same idea that, that we have to stop the fascists, we have to confront them, and we have to defend our communities. And um, right now, college campuses are a big sort of a, a space where, I guess, I mean, both sides are, are trying to organize, but, but, but we see fascists trying to organize, and they're trying to organize for the essentially extermination of, of uh, students and people of color, queer and trans folks. I mean, that kind of organizing can't be happening and when we're very opposed to it and we intend on confronting and shutting it down. I mean, we're obviously opposed to Richard Spencer. Probably more uh, what, we're, what we're focusing on or concerned with is actually his followers that come here and, 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 and um, who are trying to organize and who do and have uh, attack pretty much anyone that disagrees with them, uh, especially marginalized communities. So I'm not so sure about this. A survey conducted by John Villasenor a Brookings Institution senior fellow and UCLA professor, found that a fifth of undergrads now say it's acceptable to use physical force to silence a speaker who makes quote-unquote offensive and hurtful statements. The professor conducted a nationwide survey of 1,500 undergraduate students at four-year colleges. He offered a hypothetical that sounds familiar. Let's say a public university hosts a very controversial speaker, one known for making offensive and hurtful statements. Would it be acceptable for a student group to disrupt the speech by, quote, loudly and repeatedly shouting so that the audience cannot hear the speaker? Half said that, yes, it would be appropriate. Democrats were more likely than Republicans to find this response acceptable, and that men were more likely than women, too. Additionally, respondents were also asked if it would be acceptable for a student group to use violence to prevent that same controversial speaker from talking. 19% said yes. This is so new to me. There's this group called Antifa. that, well, At least the media puts it as Antifa, but it stands for anti-fascism. And they basically used violence to combat the Yiannopoulos followers at UC Berkeley. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think it was right to use violence to go against Yiannopoulos and his followers? Not all the time. A lot of the time, uh, tactics used by anti-fascists um, uh, become elevated to the point where maybe people get hurt. Um, I don't know that I would call property destruction violence, um, although some people would. And I think the reason why, why such tactics come into play and why people are so critical of them, Antifa, these anti-fascists, sort of realize that we can't stop fascist organizing and, and by debate. It, it, we can't do it by ignoring it. The, those historically have never worked. Um, and so I'm not advocating violence or, or any of that stuff. The, the Richard Spencer, the Stop Spencer at MSU isn't, you know, we don't plan that. We're planning on confronting Richard Spencer and defending our community. And the way to do that is not through open discourse and, and ignoring them. That's, as I said before, that's, that's never worked. Jonathan Haidt a social psychologist at NYU Stern School of Business, and Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of the Foundation of Individual Rights in Education, wrote a piece in The Atlantic back in July 2017 challenging Aiden's claim that, quote-unquote, historically, it has never worked. They point out that, quote, 
Rather than protecting students from words and ideas that they'll inevitably hear, colleges should do all they can to equip students to thrive in a world full of words and ideas that they cannot control. Free speech, properly understood, is not violence. It is a cure for violence, unquote. Additionally, they mentioned a 2010 decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, Rodriguez v. Maricopa County Community College District. Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski said that, quote, the right to provoke, offend, and shock lies at the core of the First Amendment. Intellectual advancement has traditionally progressed through discord and dissent, as a diversity of views ensures that ideas survive because they are correct, not because they are popular. Colleges and universities, sheltered from the currents of popular opinion by tradition, geography, tenure, and monetary endowments, have historically fostered that exchange, unquote. Basically, Haidt and Lukinov argues it was radical enlightenment that aided to tolerate the existence of dissenters, and an even more radical idea to actually engage with them. I'm curious, Aiden, when you said the historically open discourse and debate hasn't worked, has your organization or maybe you guys personally have tried debating with them, quote unquote, them? You're in like the fascists. No, and not not really interested. I've never personally tried um, arguing with a fascist. I think that there's a time and place for a variety of tactics. Though, generally speaking, I don't think that just arguing with them and using superior arguments is is a good strategy. I think that most people don't become fascists because they're carefully considering what every side has to say, and they're like, oh, this Hitler guy makes a good point. I, I think that there's a very emotional appeal to it. I think that a lot of people become fascists because they want to they want to feel powerful. They're afraid of people different from them, and uh, the the Nazis are telling them that join us, you'll be you'll be cool. We'll keep you safe from all the all the scary other ethnic groups. And I think with those sorts of people, a strong group confronting them is is more effective. I, I don't think that never discuss talking to fascists, never arguing with fascists. They wouldn't say that that's my position, but. Generally speaking, I don't think the, the free marketplace of ideas, as people call it, is the, the best strategy. Open debate or, you know, discussion. I, I think that's also exactly what the fascists want, and that's part of how they, how they could organize, um, is they're doing that. We, we say no platform for fascists. When some people talk about, you know, saying, well, you know, why don't you debate them? You know, you're shutting them down, whatever. If you're coming from, if someone's coming from that perspective, they're sort of saying that fascism, that white nationalism is an opinion, a valid opinion that is that is to be recognized as legitimate and and talked about and debated. I mean, and and so we say it's not. We say it's ethnic cleansing, it's genocide, it's exterminationism, and we don't debate that. It's, I mean, it's it's pretty clear cut. You know, we're you know we're not talking about conservatives, we're not talking about Republicans, we're talking about fascists, about I mean, people who literally want want us dead. I was confused. I empathize with Aiden and Jonas's passion for anti-fascism, but is the violence that comes with it necessary? It sounds like there's so many gray areas that I'm missing out on. So I decided to contact Nancy Costello, a law professor and director of the First Amendment Clinic at MSU, 
and Free Expression Online Library and Resource Center. And after listening to the previous interview, she offered her expertise on whether open discourse has worked historically in the U.S. I, I disagree with that. I think the First Amendment is one of the reasons we are such a great country. And I'm not a real nationalistic person at all. She thinks that the First Amendment is an incredible thing that the Founding Fathers put in place back in the 1700s. The First Amendment protects speech, any speech that is not lies, that is not obscene, that is not false advertising, right? We have some certain standards here that is not protected speech. But it protects a lot of speech. It protects hate speech. Which is really broad and can run really deep. And the U.S. is different than a lot of countries because of that. We can express things about who we hate, what we hate, in ways that other countries wouldn't even dream of. And that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. What the First Amendment does not protect is bad conduct. It does not protect things that would otherwise violate other laws, like vandalism or you know, destruction of property, as this person is talking about. And I think that's right. I don't think that we have the right to destroy property or to inflict physical harm or physical threats on people. But I do think that we have the right to speak openly and publicly about what we believe in. And that's a very powerful thing. But what if the First Amendment did protect violence? If it did, if it did protect that, that's a really slippery slope, right? How far does vandalism extend? Is it burning crosses on people's front lawns, like the Ku Klux Klan Mm -hmm. has done and used to do a lot, right? Does it protect throwing rocks through windows, uh, Molotov cocktails through windows, so you set people's houses on fire, right? This person, I don't know what they necessarily endorse in terms of those types of bad acts, those types of violent acts, but that escalates things to a point where Emotionally, people have a hard time controlling themselves. I think as human beings, we have to know where to draw the line that way. Aiden argues that the escalation is much needed in the situation. I think, you know, if, if, if we want to call this a free speech issue, I mean, we need to look at what these fascists are trying to do, what they're trying to organize for. So, so they're trying to get organized. They're coming to college campuses to give speeches and, and, to, and to organize and, and to gain momentum and power so that they can carry out their, uh, their ideology, and, which is, is genocidal, which is exterminationist. Um, and so it's not only the long term, it's also the short term in that when they come to campus, when they get that power, when they get bigger... And even when they're not, they, they attack people, they kill people. And if we let these groups exist, if we do not oppose them, by them existing, they are actually stifling, completely shutting off the, the, the free speech and, and the freedom to just be alive of people of color, of queer and trans folks, of, of Jewish people, of, of anarchists, anyone who, who disagrees with them. You know, we're saying we're already seeing this happen. We don't want them to get bigger and so that it happens more. Basically, Aiden believes it's important to protect the marginalized voices in this country. And Professor Costello agrees. They are, they're protesting. They, 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 they feel so strongly against the alt-right, you know, the neo-Nazi statements 
sense in them that they want to really show how strongly they feel. And I understand that. I actually believe that myself. I don't believe in these statements. Um, I don't believe in these sentiments either. But the thing about this, this is what the First Amendment protects, right? This is what's really, really, really important to understand. The First Amendment protects, it's not just the First Amendment, it's the Constitution. We have to ask ourselves, what does the Constitution protect? The Constitution protects the minority. They protect the marginalized voices. They protect the voices on the edge, the extremes, okay? Because everybody in the middle kind of agrees. And the people in the middle protect themselves because they're the majority and they vote. So they vote for who they want in office. They vote for who they want to hear speak all the time. They do not vote on the, you know, they, they tend not to vote in favor of the marginalized voices. But the marginalized voices are really important because they are the ones who bring the different types of civil rights movements into the forefront. Marginalized voices are not just going to come from perhaps the liberal movements on the left, who many people agree with. They're also going to be coming from the marginalized voices on the right, who sometimes now people don't agree with. But at one time, they were mainstream voices, perhaps. The thing is, what we have to look at historically is that a lot of what we consider mainstream right now used to be very marginalized in the past. I'm going to give you a great example of this. Margaret Sanger was her example. For those of you who don't know her, she was essentially the mother of birth control in this country back in the 1920s in terms of Planned Parenthood. She was passing out birth control on the streets of New York, and she was getting arrested for it. Now, not only is birth control legalized, but it's become mainstream. This has given women an opportunity to control their reproductive lives. But this was not out there back in the 1920s and 30s and so forth, even though there had been birth control devices at that time. It became more popular because somebody like Margaret Sanger was pushing and talking about it. And the First Amendment would have protected her talking about it. So back in the 1920s, this was impossible for it to be a rule. But by the 50s, 70s, and 80s, it became mainstream. Our, our memories are very short. So we look at someone like Richard Spencer, who perhaps many people disagree with. I disagree with. But I know that if I somehow outlaw or suppress someone who is speaking from a marginalized point of view, if I somehow suppress that speech, what other speech on the other side, on the far left side, that's considered marginalized speech, will I also be suppressing? And that's what the First Amendment protects. It protects everyone. You know, Thomas Jefferson once said something like, I may not like what you have to say about me, but I will protect to the death your right to say it. I really believe that. Why do you think people can misconstrue this or misunderstand this? Because people think that, you know, they have the right to speak, right? That's how they see the First Amendment. But we're very, we're emotional as human beings, you know? That's who we are. That's not a bad thing, I think, because we speak both from our mind and from our heart. That's a good thing. We need both of those things to come to good policy for, you know, the country, right? But I think sometimes, you know, when people see something that they disagree with so profoundly, and they see this as something they hate, you know, they don't think about it as much intellectually in their mind. They're thinking about it very emotionally. 
and they had this gut reaction to rebel against it, to say it's wrong, shut it down. I get that. I get that from an intellectual point of view, right? I get that from an emotional point of view. But I really believe that one of the reasons the United States is such, such a, a really great country is because we allow all kinds of speech. And what we are basically believing in is that put it all out there. Put out the far right speech, the far left speech, the middle speech. Put out all the hate speech, all the speech that we think is religious speech, everything. And, and that people are intelligent enough and thoughtful enough that they're going to sift through it and boil it all down to what they really believe. And then they're going to speak out. And they're going to say, no, this is what I really believe in. This is how I'm going to vote on that. Okay? And, once, and, and, and being able to speak the speech means that you can vent your feelings. And the belief behind the First Amendment here is that if you can vent your feelings and you can get it out there in speech, you're much less likely, if your speech is suppressed, right, if you're not allowed to speak, you're much less likely to do something physical. You're much less likely to punch somebody, to take to the streets, you know, to light those torches and throw them into buildings. But if you can speak, you vent your feelings. You get it out there. And so you're, you're less likely then to react violently. The Atlantic piece I mentioned earlier raised a point related to what Professor Costello said on students being emotional. The writers, Jonathan Hayde and Greg Lukianoff, said that the iGen, short for Internet Generation, who are folks that are born after roughly 1994, are these students that are protesting and resorting to violence are too sensitive because we can't even have a person to challenge our ideologies and challenge our beliefs. We are quick to shut that down. And they deduce that it's because we're too sensitive. We can't take an insult or we can't take a challenge. How would you guys respond to that? First of all, I'm a little skeptical of trying to break all these things down by generations. There are some trends that you can observe between different age groups, but there's people of all sorts of political opinions across generations. I, I, th- I think that some older people um, also have a problem with Nazis. Um, so some of them fought a world war uh, about that, you know. I also think it's uh, very dishonest to categorize um, advocating for genocide as challenging your political beliefs. If someone's saying that they think that lowering taxes will create jobs, then, and I think that we need higher taxes to support uh, social welfare, then that's, that's a disagreement. That's challenging my political beliefs. If someone is saying that because I'm Jewish, I need to be driven out of this country. I think that's a little bit more than a, a challenge to my political beliefs. Yeah, I also don't think that characterizing uh, protesting something simply as being offended, I don't think that's a very good characterization either. I think it completely misrepresents uh, the situation. I think that if people are passionate about an issue, in this case, passionate about ethnic cleansing being wrong, then and they're willing to go out and make a statement about that and challenge the Nazis, I think that's bravery. I don't think that's just being offended by something. You're, you're basically, I mean, if, if, that's, if that's your argument, you're, you're, you, again, you're saying that, that fascism, that you know, white nationalism is, is a, a legitimate opinion 
that should be entertained and dis- and you know openly discussed. You know, I mean, generations before us before us have done the same thing, and we're just doing it now. And we we don't think that's true. And we're and we're literally when when we when we protest and when we organize, we're literally doing it so that we can survive because these people are attacking us, and them getting bigger is is a threat to all marginalized groups. And so I I don't think we're being sensitive. I think I think what's been happening is is a good thing. And Professor Costello agrees with their passion and needing to take action. But she offers another perspective that I don't think us, I, Jen, have ever even thought of. No, I don't think they're too sensitive. I think (laughs) I'm going to sound like I'm old saying this, but I'll tell you what. I teach law school and I can see it in law school. The Internet encourages short readings of information. It encourages the intake of short bursts of information, right? We watch a podcast for three minutes. We read a tweet that was 140 characters. I guess it's now like 280 characters or something. And this is how we get our information. So our attention span is really short. And what we're not doing anymore is reading. We're not sitting or watching a documentary on something. We're watching a longer news report on television that lasts longer than two minutes. You know, life is complicated. There's no way you can explain life or a situation in two minutes. Or you can read about it in two minutes and get it. What the Internet has done is shortened our attention span. And so people are not reading as deeply as they used to. They're not listening to longer videos or newscasts. As longer as long as they used to, they're not listening. Not just news programs, but how about documentaries? You know, how about sitting down and watching an hour-long video on something? You know, that's on television. People aren't doing this anymore, and they think they're getting all this information because they're picking it up from Facebook and from Twitter and from Instagram and Snapchat. And you know what? I'm telling you, it's like a mile wide and an inch deep in terms of depth. They're not getting the real information. You've got to study this more. And, you know, you think you're getting it all because you're doing this, but you're all watching the same podcast. If you're like one group of people, you're all watching the same podcast, the same newscast, the same tweets, everything that's being put out there. And you're not listening to sort of broader news. So you're not getting everybody's point of view and really listening in on it. That's the, I love the Internet for a lot of reasons. I think it's amazing. The amount of information that we can get, I think it's amazing how quick we can get it. I think it's amazing how we can learn so much about different cultures because, you know, everybody in the world can post things on the Internet. And we can learn a lot from different cultures that we never knew about. Now we have this myriad of different places to go to get information. I don't know that we do it. I don't know if we have time to do it. And so the Internet generation is not going deep. I see it with my law students, you know. They have a hard time, I think, sitting still to read through a whole law case to really understand the entire thing. It's complex, it's dense, it's intense. It's, you know, you really have to parse it out, but they're not doing it because they're too used to reading these short snippets off of Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. You know, it's not so much Facebook. They, they really are not. They're too young. There's something that's really important about looking at the medium by which people learn this information by. And they are trying to learn things too quickly and it's not deep enough. And they have to learn how to read deeper, 
kind of listen deeper. And that's a problem if you want to adapt good policy. A mile wide and an inch deep. That really stuck with me. Because it's true. I'm guilty of reading five tweets and then suddenly I'm an expert on how Tide Pods are not really dangerous, which is probably false. It also made me reflect on my rights as a human being here on American soil. Yes, I'm a foreigner, and yes, I'm on a student visa, but I'm able to participate in the freedom that's granted to Americans. Open discourse, ranting on social media, and disapproving the president. I could never think of doing that back home. The fact that people can elect and vote for a leader democratically here is amazing. Some countries need to go through a military coup to elect a president, and especially social media. A few months ago, when I was back home in Jakarta, a guy was arrested for posting a meme making fun of our president on Facebook. One meme. Here, the amount of posts made online range from insults to rants to dirty humor. It's crazy. And I think we forget that the U.S. is really far off better than most nations who do not even have a First Amendment. Or freedom, really. And I think that's something we need to remind ourselves of before we smash windows and punch someone's face. In the bigger picture, life is so much better today. So much progress has been made. And yes, of course, there's a lot more we need to do. However, we can't lose sight of the freedom that's granted to us because that is a very special thing. That's the core of what being American today means. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Abby Rink, our program director, Ella Kovacs, Impact's one and only news team, our social media coordinator, Camille Rogers, and our tech consultant, Nicholas Serna. Last but not the least, you for tuning in. Thank you. Look out for our next episode in two weeks. In the meantime, God bless America.